Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for bringing us all once again back to your house. We thank you that those who weren't able to be with us for various reasons for a while uh, can always come back and that they are here with us today. We pray once again. It's been prayed for often, and we pray for it once again. Uh, for this upcoming Vacation Bible School this week, starting tomorrow, going through the end of the week. We pray that your name would be glorified. We pray that things would go smoothly. We pray that uh, the kids' hearts would be opened uh, to want to know about you and want to know more about you, uh, want to know you more. I pray for uh, everything that will happen during that week, all the crafts and games and snacks, and that everything, everything would go well. Pray for Don uh, as he leads each night's lesson and the song time uh, and comes up with the memory verses for the kids and, and everything in connection with that, that you would give him the strength that he needs uh, as he's also uh, doing his other various local missionary uh, duties in, in nursing homes and, and such during the day and then uh, comes here in the evening uh, to do VBS. Pray that you give him the strength that he needs. And most of all, we pray that you would be glorified. We pray that your name would be raised high and that, that you would receive praise and thanks. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for everything that it reveals to us, the truths in it, about how we can be more than conquerors over everything that we face in this life. Through the armor of God, through your Holy Spirit, through uh, the salvation that you give to our souls. So, Lord, I pray that you bless this time that we have together this morning. Bless the words of my mouth that your spirit would go forth uh, and work in hearts. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a scientific study published in 2013 by the University of Copenhagen uh, in the scientific journal named Metaphilosophy in which one of the researchers in the study, Vincent F. Hendricks, puts forth the conclusion that social media and online discussion forums take the age-old phenomenon of acting irrationally because we truly believe that everyone else is. As a lead-in to the actual study, Hendricks references a phenomenon that happened in 2007. There's an old book published in 1924 entitled Love Letters of Great Men and Women, colon, from the 18th century to the present day. That's the, whole, that's the whole title. That had fallen out of popularity due to its age. However, when the main character of a wildly popular TV show is seen in that show reading a book entitled Love Letters of Great Men, a book that doesn't actually exist, Fans of the show flocked to Amazon and other book retailers looking for it, finding the title of this book from 1984 instead, and in mass, buying a book they didn't actually want. The, the real book, no one had heard of before, shot up to Amazon's bestseller list in 2007 because of this phenomenon. Hendricks also pointed out that platforms such as Facebook and Google 
purposely create algorithms so that what you see in your news feed or search results are actually molded after your past clicks and searches so you're not getting the full picture on any given topic. Hendricks concluded that this promotes the age-old peer pressure drive to do something because it's perceived that, well, everyone else is thinking this or doing this. This then leads to becoming entrenched in ideas that don't reflect reality or entrenched in ideas that is destructive behavior, such as buying real estate at wildly inflated pro uh, prices because someone truly believes that's what everyone else is doing and they don't want to miss out. What this is really is an en masse brainwashing of groups of people who are led to believe something that's not actually what is happening. I don't think we needed a scientific study to point this out to us, especially these days. But it's interesting to see this backed up by science as well. We see it all over the place and have seen it for a long time. In fact, as Hendricks noted, this phenomenon has pretty much existed for the entire history of humanity. It's just that social media is driving it on a much larger scale today and with greater numbers of people, which is why we have to be especially careful as believers in Jesus to not get caught up in the next ideological craze, no matter how many people it seems are prescribing to it. We see this phenomenon even playing out in what's recorded in our passage of Scripture this morning. That of a large group of people acting irrationally and not using their brains. In part because it seemed like everyone else was believing the same thing that didn't actually reflect reality. So, what are we talking about here today? At the end of last week's passage in verse 36, we talked about how God the Father supernaturally removed Jesus physically from the presence of the people who were once again challenging him as the prophesied Messiah. Now, as we pick back up in the next verse, this is a cutaway from the main account to give a sort of behind-the-scenes look at what was going on in the hearts of the people and ultimately what was going on even further behind the scenes spiritually. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be picking up in verse 37. Uh, if you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John 12 verse 37 or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. This is what we read, picking up in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Imagine the willful unbelief here. Those who had been around Jesus for these past three years have seen him pull off incredible, jaw-dropping miracles up to this point. They had seen him heal a man who hadn't been able to walk for 40 years, feed tens of thousands of people with just a few fish and loaves of bread with leftovers. And had done that twice. Healed countless people from their health issues. Ones that absolutely no one could help them with. They had no hope of ever being physically well if it weren't for Jesus healing them. And, let's not forget this one. Calling a man who had been dead for four days back from the dead. And yet, they still didn't 
believe. As one biblical scholar points out, their unbelief is irrational, as a sinful heart and mind always are. They're not thinking rationally. Part of it was that group and en masse mentality of, well, nobody else around here believes this guy is the Messiah, no matter what is shown otherwise, so I'm going to not believe in him either. I don't want to look like the nerd around here or the crazy conspiracy theorist that everyone else ridicules. Tack onto that peer pressure, that peer pressure mentality of irrationality, what John had already recorded earlier in this gospel, but brings up again, verse 40, verses 42 through uh, 43. We're going to jump ahead a little bit here and then come back to what's in between. Nevertheless, many, even of the, of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than than the approval of God. Those are some powerful words, aren't they? See, some of the religious leaders in Jesus' day did actually believe in Jesus as the Messiah. But their fear of the repercussions of what could happen and what would happen kept them from publicly promoting their belief in Jesus. The Pharisees had already put out uh, an arrest warrant for Jesus and Lazarus. Remember that. Put the evidence to death, too. And a public service announcement that if anyone professed belief in this Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah, they would be excommunicated from the synagogue and be shunned by the rest of the Jewish community. So what we have going on here is two social forces driving the people's irrational belief. Number one, the peer pressure mentality of what each person thought everyone else believed. And number two, the fear of what repercussions they would face for those beliefs. Keep those two social forces in your mind. Now, there is also a spiritual behind-the-scenes component of what's going on here, too. Verse 38. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is the first of two prophecies from Isaiah that John will quote in this morning's passage. This first quote is from the incredibly messianic chapter of Isaiah 53. And what's very interesting to note here is that this is the suffering servant prophetic chapter in Isaiah. What are some other well-known verses from this chapter? He has no stately form or majesty that we would look on him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom the people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. That's in Isaiah 53. And the very next verse says this, however, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed 
that he was the one afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. We thought, what kind of bad stuff did this guy do that he's getting cursed by God? The people are looking at Jesus, who doesn't look royal, doesn't look like he should be a king, doesn't even look like eye candy and handsome, and think there's no way he's supposed to be the messianic king. And then when Jesus is beaten, torn apart, humiliated, and nailed to a cross, the people would look at him and think, well, this guy who has any dignity as a human being beaten out of him certainly doesn't look like who the Messianic king is supposed to be. But the biting irony is that they obviously completely forgot about or conveniently ignored Isaiah's prophecies that the Messiah purposely wouldn't look like he was supposed to be the Messiah. It was prophesied that he would look like a, co a common schmo and not looking any different from everyone else. And so as John points out right here, the people and all of their so-called human wisdom and patting themselves on the back for not falling into the trap that so many of them had fallen into, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah, was them ironically actually fulfilling prophecy they had conveniently been ignorant of. Isaiah begins his chapter 53 of the prophesied suffering servant with the words John quotes in verse 38. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the Lord been revealed? We read that in John's quote here. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? As noted by one biblical scholar, the rhetorical questions that Isaiah 53.1 is asking is implying that only a select few or a righteous remnant would end up putting their faith in Jesus, while the vast majority would scoff at his common and lowly appearance and just go along with everyone else's unbelief. In addition, the term arm of the Lord references God's power. And in the context of John 12, 38, it's the power of God revealed through the miracles of Jesus, which all these people have witnessed, but they still weren't good enough for them to believe in the one working those miracles. Israel's initial unbelief by simply not taking Jesus seriously based on his appearance and hometown culminated in God further hardening their hearts as a whole. Verses 39 through 40. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. This time, John's quote from Isaiah comes from Isaiah 6.10. In the context of that, the climax of God calling Isaiah to be a prophet to the kingdom of Judah. In that context, God tells Isaiah outright, that his words to the people of Judah would only harden their hearts more to God, thus sealing their fate of Babylonian exile. 
this theological relationship between humanity's God-endowed free will and God's sovereignty over their decisions and eternal destination is one that will never fully be understood this side of heaven. And one we don't need to understand. Or one that, and one that we should understand as the creator's creation. A more in-depth study on this theological and mysterious relationship can be found in Romans chapter 9. There the apostle Paul writes, What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? Far from it. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whoever I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then, it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs from it, but on God who has mercy. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. That's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Taken in combination with what Paul already revealed in Romans 8, God already determined before he even created the universe who he would have mercy on and call to put their faith in Jesus for salvation and who he would not have mercy on and rather would harden the heart of. This brings up a theological conundrum, though. One could ask, well, if God's the one who already determined all of this, why are we still held responsible for and must still deal with the consequences of our sinful thoughts, words, and actions? And doesn't that remove free will altogether? No. For we read elsewhere in Scripture, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh and his own selfishness will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit, walking according to the Holy Spirit, will reap eternal life from the Spirit. So, how do we reconcile the two? We simply trust God. And from His Word, that both are equally true. And leave it at that. Paul addresses that next in Romans 9. He references a rhetorical person challenging this theological relationship antagonistically and gives his Holy Spirit revealed answer. You will say to me then, why does he still feel, find fault? Why are we still held responsible for our sin? For who has resisted his will? Doesn't that remove free will altogether? Those are the questions we just asked. On the contrary, who are you, you foolish person, who answers back to God, who talks back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have a right over the clay to make, one for, to make from the same lump one object for honorable use, who he'll have grace upon, and another for common use, or the one that he'll pardon. In other words, as Paul says here in Romans 9, we simply are to know that God has both in his sovereignty elected some to pour his mercy unto salvation out upon and elected some to harden 
in their sin, resulting in banishment to hell, and that we still think, say, and act out our sin in our selfish desires, and thus are still held responsible for it and leave that in his hands. After all, as Paul writes in Romans 9, God is the potter and we are merely the clay. And we have no right to challenge him on either one of these points. And so, as John references in verses 38 and 39 in our passage this morning, Israel as a whole had been hardened by God at that point, in ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 6.10. In the words of one biblical scholar, and I quote, Jesus' teaching resulted in desensitizing the Jewish people rather than leading them to faith. End quote. They had heard Jesus' teaching about himself and the kingdom of God so much that it was just white noise to them at that point. It didn't mean anything to them anymore. Instead of powerfully convicting them to faith, it didn't even register in their minds anymore what Jesus was talking about. Like we had been talking about in reference to Romans 9, this can be extended to everyone of unbelief today. A lot of people have heard so much about Jesus, have heard so much about his love and salvation, but have never done anything about it, just keep kicking the can down the road, that they're just oblivious to it anymore. It means nothing to them anymore. And no longer has the power to convict them to faith, and it's just white noise at this point. That's an incredibly dangerous place to be in. For it wouldn't take any more sharing of the gospel to convict them. They're already deaf to it. And no further amount of God's word will change that. In those, in those cases, it will take a radical and extreme shaking of them to their very core or removing everything they hold dear to result in a rock-bottom experience to finally get through to them. If you know someone, or you have a loved one who you know is, this, is in this place, maybe they were raised in the church and heard everything about Jesus before many, many, many times, and yet they're still far away from it. It's not out of the question to pray for God to put experiences in their lives that shake them to their very core, strip them of everything they hold dear, and result in rock bottom. Isn't it far greater and better for them in this earthly life to lose everything in this life and yet have their soul saved? In Israel's case here, as Paul will reveal in several of his New Testament letters, their loss in being hardened because of their unbelief and in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy is the gain for those of us disciples who are thoroughly Gentile in background. 
as Paul reveals in Romans 11, it's only because so many of God's chosen people rejected Jesus in God's sovereignty and were snapped off as branches off of God's family tree of faith that we who are Gentiles could be grafted onto that tree of faith in the first place. John says something shocking next, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Now, who is the his and him that John is referencing here? John, by way of the Holy Spirit, has been referencing Isaiah throughout this passage and pointing out the whole of the nation of Israel's unbelief in Jesus. And in verse 41, John once again turns to the first six chapters of Isaiah. In those first six chapters, Isaiah is given a vision of God and his glory, which culminates in God giving him, uh, calling him to be his prophet. That glory drives Isaiah to cry out that his sin is too great to be in the presence of it. It's that overwhelming and breathtaking to Isaiah. And what does John say in verse 41? That that same exact overwhelming and breathtaking glory of God that Isaiah experienced in his vision is what? The exact same glory of Jesus that Jesus has been displaying all this time. John shockingly says that when Isaiah saw the glory of God the Father, he was also seeing the glory of Jesus as God the Son. That's absolutely incredible, isn't it? And yet John's bringing it up. Because by Israel rejecting Jesus' glory, the glory they were really rejecting was of God the Father as well. That's truly condemning, isn't it? Going back to verses 42 through 43 again, John references this glory of God again. The word translated as approval here twice in verse 43, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God, can be translated as glory too. Ultimately, the message is the same. Those who seek the glory from or approval of men simply are not seeking the glory from or approval of God. The opposite is equally true. Those who seek the glory from or approval of God will face the automatic rejection of men. I've referenced this several times recently because it just goes so hand in hand with what we've been talking about lately. And this morning is no different. James writing in 4.4, you adulteresses. James doesn't pull any, pu any punches here. Do you not know that friendship with the world automatically equates to hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. They're polar opposites. You can't have one foot in one camp and one in the other. They're polar opposites. Now, remember what I told you to keep in mind earlier in this message. 
What twofold points that we drew directly out of our passage this morning did I tell you to keep in mind? What are the two responses of the people that were referenced in these verses? Number one, the peer pressure mentality, no matter how irrational it is, but it's what everyone thought everyone else believed, and so they just went along with it. And two, fear of the potential repercussions of their belief in Jesus. That, in connection with our opening illustration, never changed. Here we are 2,000 years later, and nothing has changed. Absolutely nothing has changed. People's hearts are still hardened. Those two responses we drew out of this morning's verses are still the reigning, prevalent way people respond to the difficult topics of today. Today, however, the reigning and permeating overarching social law is this. Don't make anyone feel judged and don't offend anyone for any reason. That's the gospel of this current culture. Don't make anybody feel judged and don't offend anyone for any reason. And the so-called Christian version of that is God is love, just wants everyone to be happy and feel good and never feel judged, especially by other Christians. That's today's version of the first response we drew out of today's passage that of just going along with whatever is the popular overarching gospel and thinking that's just what everyone believes and should believe. But what is that? In reality, a false gospel. That's what that is in reality. That is certainly not what the whole of the Bible teaches. Why? Because the core of the true gospel is offensive. That's just what it is. It preaches and promotes that everyone should feel judged and convicted of their sin. Repent of it, and instead of promoting your lived truth, promoting God's absolute truth. The true gospel itself is offensive, and it will always be offensive. You simply cannot share it without being offensive. And that goes completely counter the reigning false gospel of this culture. Yes, God is love, but that's not a cover all. God is also just and will judge humanity in that perfect justice. The false gospel of this culture that is so-called love and loving others equals never offending them. That's how that's redefined as, never offend them. But that's not love. That's not biblical and actual love. That's a lie, really. Biblical love means pointing out God's truth in a caring way, no matter how much it hurts you or them. To allow a loved one to keep going down the path of destruction they're going on and just watching them on that without telling them God's truth in a caring way 
is not loving. To strive to be wishy-washy in what you agree with or remain silent on, depending on who might get offended by the truth of God's word, is not love. To never vocalize the truth of God's love worked out in the death and resurrection of the Son of God, calling all who want that love and salvation to repentance, repentance of sin, repentance of self, and repentance of who someone was born to be, to never vocalize that and to just keep it to yourself is not love. To keep that to yourself out of fear of the repercussions of being vocal about it is not love. The basic offense of the true gospel message of God's word extends to every other area. Contrary to the false gospel of this culture, to remain silent about or to promote and support a woman's freedom of choice to murder her own child out of not wanting to appear judgy or out of fear of repercussions of vocalizing anything other than what is acceptable to this culture is not love. It's not loving towards the woman who is going to undergo intense physical, emotional, and mental damage. It's certainly not uh, loving towards the innocent child who has no say in his or her origin circumstances and will be inhumanely, sadistically, and indescribably, cruelly ripped apart alive while his or her screams of pain are muffled from being still inside the womb. That is an unspeakably torturous form of murder towards the most defenseless humans that exist. Get your head out of the sand. That is what abortion really is. Even as faceless terms like medical procedure, termination of pregnancy, or reproductive rights are hidden behind. To seek to not offend anyone on that topic is not love towards anyone. The woman or that child. I'm not going to mince words here. You know what that is? That's cowardice, is what that is. That's not love. That's cowardice. God has called his children to stand up for his truth in love, protect the defenseless, and boldly vocalize his truth and the lies, point out the lies that the world just wants to comfortably believe and hide behind. Contrary to the false gospel of this culture, to remain silent about or promote and support, especially the transgender movement, clearly targeting children and trying to sexualize them, in general, for sick, selfish, and demonic reasons, is not love. It's certainly not loving towards innocent children who should be protected from the perverted twistedness of the LGBTQIA plus movement and specifically transgender movement and pornography and completely unnecessary so-called alternative but really just deviant sexual behavior and practices being peddled as sex education in schools and all over kids programs. Once again, 
God has called his children to stand up for his truth in love, protect the innocent and defenseless, and boldly vocalize his truth and point out the lies the world just wants to comfortably believe and hide behind. To remain silent and watching on as someone walks down the path of their own destruction, no matter what form that takes, just having sex with whoever they want to, indulging in pornography or gambling, addictions of every form, alcohol, marijuana, pharmaceuticals, video games, binge watching, junk food, or anything else that steals the time and physical well-being that is meant for serving God and his kingdom, embracing, indulging in, and identifying with anything outside of God's design for marriage, sexuality, and gender, i.e., anything on the LGBTQIA spectrum, a couple or single woman contemplating murdering their or her own child, someone thinking about taking his or her own life, and someone who has never really heard or has initially rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ unto his or her eternal damnation to remain silent in watching on as someone walks down any of those paths of their own destruction is not loving them. To remain silent about the irrational and absolutely absurd ambitions and standards of the world, this culture, and its false gospel, no matter what they are, is not love. Lies must be pointed out as the lies they are, originating from the father of lies. And the truth of God's word must be boldly vocalized and stood up for with what biblical love actually is. Not virtue signaling, but actually caring about the well-being and spiritual destination of people and doing something about it. That's what biblical love is. For any of you listening to me and saying, okay, you've told me what love isn't. What is biblical love? It's actually caring about the well-being and spiritual destination of people and doing something about it. Our culture will have us believe that their false gospel is just what everyone else believes so that everyone will believe it. That hasn't changed in the 2,000 years since John recorded the people's first response to Jesus. And in connection with the second response of people toward Jesus, drawn out of today's passage, it's certainly not loving to care too much about our own skin and what we might suffer through in this earthly life for standing for, vocalizing, and acting on the truth of God's word. Jesus himself declared this, and do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Our life on this earth is just a vapor anyway, but they are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Who do we fear? And let's not forget what else Jesus declared just a few verses later. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before people, 
I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before people, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Don't forget that's in God's word. And lastly, the false gospel of this world, even the Christian-sounding one, preaches. Christian love means not offending anyone. Jesus wants us to love everyone without having any standards and to just love to unite everyone in acceptance. But that's not at all what Jesus himself said. What Jesus himself said was that his message was going to divide even family members and was going to drive people to want to kill you because of it. He says immediately after these words that we just read, do not for one second think that I came to bring peace on the earth, that I just came to bring love and acceptance and unite everyone. I did not come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword with me. For I came to, and th these are uh, Old Testament verses quoted here, to turn a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies, don't be surprised by this at all, brothers and sisters, will be the members of his own household. I think we like to forget those verses exist in the Bible. But sure enough, they're there. In connection with the last verse of this morning's passage, I'm going to read that again. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Are we seeking the glory from and approval of fellow human beings with what we stand for, vocalize, and act on? Or are we seeking the glory from and approval of God and Him alone? As we've seen throughout this message, it can only be one or the other. You can't have both. You either have one or you have the other. It can never and will never, as much as you wish it were different, be both. We can either seek to please other humans and what they deem as acceptable and therefore stand as an enemy against Almighty God, or we can seek to please God and Him alone and not care about what will result, what will come as a result from other humans. We have to choose one or the other. Time is short. We've run out of time. You've heard me say that before. We've run out of time. We cannot remain silent about God's truth any longer. Would you re rather receive fleeting approval from capricious humans or God's approval and eternal reward when you stand before Jesus at the end of this life? In how we live our lives, what we stop remaining silent about, what we cast off in this culture's false gospel, and what we stop fearing as results from, us boldly standing for, vocalizing, and acting on God's truth, we must all follow Jesus' words at the end of this Matthew 10 I keep referencing. 
The one who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And the one who does not take his, does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. The one who has found his life in this earth, in this world, will lose it. And the one who has lost his life in this world, on this earth, on my account, will find it, and will find it for all of eternity. Again, these are very difficult words to hear and live by. This was a tough message today. But they're the truth, and nothing changes the truth. Nothing ever changes what the truth is. And once again, lastly, whose glory and approval are we seeking with how we're living? Other people's or God's? Other people's definition of what love is or what God's definition of what love is? Other people's definition of what truth is or what God's definition of truth is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we were able to glean from these words in this passage this morning. The tough words to hear, the difficult words to hear, tough words to live by, tough words to take to heart and make changes in our lives because of, but they're the truth. And nothing ever changes that truth. Lord, I pray that if we've been running from the truth, we would stop running. We would surrender ourselves to you and your truth. I pray that if we've remained silent about what your word teaches, about salvation, about any given topic, especially the difficult, hot topic ones in our culture today, I pray that we would stop being silent and we would start boldly declaring your truth and love to stand up for the innocent and defenseless in this world. To actually care for their well-being. To actually care for their spiritual destination. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with the courage of the Holy Spirit to do what we need to do from this point forward. To make what changes we need to make in our lives. To stop being silent and start standing up. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.